Our text today is going to come from the fifth chapter of the book of Luke. And we're going to be in the first verse all the way to the 11th verse. But before we get there, let us have a word of prayer. Lord, we just ask that you just bless this word. Amen. <laughs> Y'all can tell Tim so he can be proud of me, all right? <laughs> so today what we're going to talk about, you know, one thing I think that a lot of times, you know, we forget is that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is something that we are born into. It's not something that we study to take a test to become a citizen of. You know, I know people that are from other countries that have migrated to America and, you know, they want to take up citizenship. Well, it's a whole completely different process for those of us who have been born in America and those of us that were born in other countries that want to become citizens. I think we would all attest the easiest way to become a citizen is to be born here. Because when you're not born into it, you, you have to study. It's very laborious. There's many tests. Uh, there's a lot of red tape. There's fees. All these kind of things go into it. But the thing that I have also found, as Juliet mentioned, I'm also a, a government teacher. Um, my undergrad degree is in political science. I have found out that the people who know the most about our country tend to be the people that are not from here. See, because when you are born into something, sometimes you take it for granted. Sometimes you, you don't necessarily study to show yourself approved. But when you're not from here, the amount of, of work that is required to put in to become a citizen, a lot of times you're going to know more than someone who is simply born into it. With that being said, when we are born into, how many of you would say that we are still all growing in our knowledge and understanding of how our kingdom works, right? So when you're born into something, you don't necessarily know the laws, the decrees, the principles of the land until you come of a certain age. So as it is in the kingdom of heaven, we're born into the kingdom of heaven, but just if I go ask a one-year-old, how do you register to vote, that would be an inappropriate question, right? There are some things that if I ask a one-year-old believer, there are going to be some inappropriate questions as well. Because as we grow in citizenship, we grow in knowledge of the country in which we're born into. So being born in the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the important part about the church is that the church is where we learn our rights, our privileges of what this citizenship actually means. Just how in school they teach us to pledge allegiance because they want you to be patriotic. Just how there are certain classes and the, the public school system and the educational system, they teach you because they want to mold their citizens into a certain light. So what we do in the church is we want to mold citizens for the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of the first things that we learn that are very self-explanatory is how do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? How are we to live as citizens in the kingdom? Other things are very easy. They're not far reaches. Marriage. Most people, you go to the church to get married. You're going to have some type of either premarital counseling. You may have counseling after you get married. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a church connotation with that as well. Children. Most people that are in the kingdom, you're going to bring your kids to be uh, baptized. You're going to bring your children to be christened. But then there's certain areas where unconsciously a dichotomy will form in believers 
where we believe that even though that there is some sovereignty, there's some authority of our kingdom citizenship in our life, there are some places that we don't necessarily, necessarily appropriate and apply it to. And one of the most common places that I've seen this occur is in what we call the world, most people, their job. It's in the marketplace. Because many times I may speak with Christians and they're in their jobs or they're in the world or they're in commerce, they're in business, and they're doing something that they know um, is diametrically opposed to how they were formed to be shaped as citizens of heaven. But the response tends to be, but I don't have a kingdom job. You see, the thing is, we're not all called to work at embassies, but we're all called to work in the kingdom. I would, I would submit to you that if you're on a job and you're a believer and you're a citizen of heaven, that job is a kingdom job, regardless of what it is. Because as a believer, you carry the kingdom of God with you. The boundaries and the parameters of the kingdom of God show up as we show up. What was not kingdom becomes kingdom the moment I sign the contract. What was not kingdom becomes kingdom the moment I get into partnership with it. So as, as people and believers, what tends to happen just as we're growing and we're learning in the knowledge of God and we're growing in the things of God, we also have like a parallel that's running side by side. We're growing in our education. So just as the church is teaching us how to be dependent and how to operate and live according to the principles of God in the world through education, through training, through mentorship, through other things, we are taught and we are trained how to function according, according to the principles that the world says that we need to be successful. But is it possible that the two can merge? So many times believers get in places and they say, well, I know that I'm manipulative. I know that I'm pushy, but, but I'm a salesman. This is what they teach me at salesman school. Well, I know I'm dishonest. I know that I cut corners and I know that I do this, but I have to make the quota. See, the thing about it is, is as citizens of the kingdom of God, sometimes we will begin to believe that we are exempt from certain code of conduct when we're not in the kingdom. But what we have to realize is that if we are there, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. We're carrying it. We're, 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 it is with us. So the text today that I want to read, and I want to read from the King James Version. Um, how many of you read the King James Version? How many of that, that is your primary version? Like, Juliet loves you guys. Like, y'all will be her best friends. Like, see her after, okay? So today, in honor of Juliet, we're going to read from the King James Version of the Bible. In verse 1 of chapter 5 of Luke, it says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and two ships standing by the lake, and he saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. As he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. 
Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your net for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And as they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken." And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto him, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all that they had, and they followed him. Now, this place that we're talking about, um, I want to make sure that you, you don't separate stories in your mind. Depending on whose account that you're reading and depending on the perspective of what hometown the author was actually writing from, you're going to see different names for this same body of water. You may see it called the Lake of Gennesaret. You may see it called the Lake of Chinnereth. You may see it called the Sea of Tiberias. But most commonly, we're going to know this as the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so for reference today, I'm just going to call it the Sea of Galilee. Now, um, history tells us that there's about 204 towns and villages that are surrounding this, this oval-shaped lake. It's about 13 miles long. It's about 7 miles wide. It's 680 feet below sea level. Okay, so if you can imagine that. Now, with 204 towns being surrounded, you can imagine that this is the center Okay, this is the center for agriculture and commercial fishing. Okay, you do not live in one of these towns and do not come across this sea. Okay, this is not a remote sea. Uh, this is not a relaxing sea. This is not a sea where people are just going, you know, kind of joyriding on Memorial Day weekend. But this is a sea of necessity that people are coming to because there is commerce that is happening. There are things that they need from this sea. Now, something that's very interesting that's worth mentioning about this sea is that there's many different kinds of fish that grow here because of the fresh water, but it's unique because the land is universally fertile. What does that mean? Universally fertile. Things, plants, vegetation that would normally be enemies of one another mutually agree in this place. Different wildlife, different vegetations, things that normally would not be able to coexist, you would have to pick which one you want to plant. You would have to pick which one you want to grow. They actually agree in this area. The fruit is nourished beyond expectations. The, the climate and the air is actually so pure there that it actually preserves it. It's not like the fruit would fall off the tree one day and die the next. Okay, but there's, there's a preservative, uh, there's a factor here. Now, things that normally under certain conditions would not be able to grow together can also grow here. So you're like, why are you going on and on about this? Well, this place is so significant in the ministry and the life of Jesus because this place is where he preaches his first sermon. 
The Sermon on the Mount takes place right up here above the shore. The majority of his teaching happens here. He perform, performs his first miracle. The wedding at Cana is one of the towns that borders the sea. Many miracles happen here on this lake. Uh, his hometown, Capernaum, is located right here. A third of his disciples come from here. So the foundation of Christianity comes from here, and later we're going to see that this is the sea that he actually walks on the water on. So Jesus is coming down, so we, you, you, you have the picture of this sea. So 13 miles, it would be like from here to Grand Prairie. Okay, that's how big this sea is. And Jesus is coming, and according to Josephus' historical accounts, he tells us that on a normal day, there's going to be about 230 boats out on the sea. So Jesus is walking. There's about 230 boats, give or take, out on the sea, and he happens to see two boats. See, sometimes we forget what a privilege it is when God calls us. Because it's not like he didn't have other options. He didn't take me because he had to. But he took me because he picked me. So Jesus is going, and there's about 230 boats, and he sees these two particular boats. Now, the thing that's interesting is that Jesus is walking. The scripture tells us that the crowds are pressing on him. Literally, people are following him around. They're wanting to hear from him. They're wanting to see him. And Jesus is just looking at these two boats. And looking at the two boats, he picks the boat that belongs to Simon. So he sees Simon Peter. He sees the whole band. They're out there washing their nets. But he goes onto Simon's boat, and he asks him the simple question. And I'm going to paraphrase. He says, can I use your boat? Can I use your boat? Now, this would seem like an odd request from a stranger, right? If somebody was to walk up to you right now and say, hey, can I use your car? There, there needs to be a level of familiarity if a request is going to be granted, right? So he goes up to Simon and he says, hey, can I use your boat? Now, this is not the first time that Simon had ever met Jesus. In John's account before, we see that Jesus had already met Simon. Simon's brother Andrew was actually already a disciple of John. Simon was not the churchgoer in his family. His brother was. So his brother is a disciple of John the Baptist, and one day he hears John the Baptist point out Jesus, and he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one. This is the Messiah. Scripture tells us in John 1, 35 through 42, that the disciples that John had, they stopped following John, and they began to follow Jesus. Because John's pointed out, he's already told him, I'm not the one, but he's the one. So Andrew begins following Jesus. Scripture tells us when he finds this out, Andrew goes home. He finds Simon sitting at home, and he's like, Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. You got to come on now. Like, imagine those siblings that you've been in trying to invite to church, and they won't come to church. So you think, like, maybe if you go home and, like, you know, you tell them that something, you know, exciting is about to happen, maybe they'll come visit, right? So, so Andrew goes home and he's telling Simon, he's like, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. 
So, you know, he kind of gets Peter out of bed and he goes and he introduces him to Jesus and he's like, this is the Messiah. Simon, I can just imagine. <laughs> okay. So Jesus looks at him and Jesus is like just, just this one liner and then he's done with him. He says, your name is uh, uh, Simon, but, you soon, but soon you will be called the rock. And then Jesus walks away. He does not reveal anything else at that time. But all Peter knows, he knows that, hey, my brother says this dude is the Messiah. And this dude told me that I'm going to stop being flaky and be a rock one day. That's all that he knows. So this dude, he comes back around and he's like, can I use your boat? So I can imagine in Simon's mind, it's like, ugh, these church people. You know, I mean, this is my brother's friend. You know, you know, they say, you know, you're the Messiah. And, you know, you, you know, yeah, man, just use the boat. Okay, I'm done working. Go ahead and use the boat. What Peter had no idea of what the power that he had in his boat. Peter had no idea. See, so the obvious reason of why Jesus needed Peter's boat, he needed the boat because the way that, uh, the way how below sea level the sea was and as high as the cliffs and the mountains and the plateau around was, Jesus knew that he could kind of create nature's amphitheater and he could make his voice louder to be able to talk to more people if he was to get on the boat and push out a little bit from the shore. He was going to be able to reach more people on Simon's boat than he would have been able if he would have just stood on the shore talking himself. So Jesus has a practical need for it and the fact that practically he wants to be able to reach more people. Now, the thing about it is, is that he asked him, he's like, can I touch your boat? Can, can I use your boat? Somebody here today, Jesus is going to ask you, can I use your boat? What did that boat signify? You see, that boat signified Peter's platform. It signified his vocation. It signified his gifts. It signified his talent. It signified what was dear to his heart. It signified a prized possession. It signified a mode of transportation. It signified the means by which he engaged and he conducted commerce. It signified the way that he provided for his family. It signified the way that he interacted with other people in the community. So the, the boat is very significant. So when Jesus says, can, can, can I use your boat? You're asking yourself, why did Jesus need to use his boat? So we see in Matthew 8 and 20, Scripture tells us that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That statement is not literal, but it's a governmental statement. The Scripture's not saying that Jesus is poor and that he was homeless, because we know that he had a home in Capernaum. But what the scripture is saying when he's saying the son of man has no place to lay his head, the head is the symbol of the kingdom. It is the symbol of the rule. It is the symbol of his government, of his authority. He continually told his disciples while he was here, he did not come to overthrow Rome. He did not come to set up a government on the earth. He did not come to set up a kingdom on the earth, but he did come to rule and reign. But what he's trying to get Peter to see is the only way that I can rule and reign on the earth is I have to have somebody that's willing to be my partner. So I'm asking you, can I use your boat? Because see, I have no place to lay my head. 
I have no business. I, I don't work through religion. But I, wanna, I, I don't want to be the king. I, I don't want to conquer territory. I want to conquer hearts. And see, if, 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 if you'll let me use your boat, if you will give me a place to lay my head, I can rule and reign through you. See, Simon, there are people right here that need to hear from me. But you're the person that has the access to the platform that I need to reach them. And see, the thing, the, the thing that's, so, that, that's so amazing about God, the thing that's so amazing about the Trinity is that he always respects our will. He's not going to make anybody be saved. And he's also not going to make you make it, let him use your boat. See, the thing about it is, is this whole time, Jesus and then now through the Holy Spirit, there's this concept of partnership with God. There's this idea of Simon, I want to do something great and I want you to be a part of it. Simon, you have a part to play in this kingdom. Simon, I, 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 could, I can talk to a few people on the shore, but if you let me use your boat. So the thing about it is, is what he's really telling Simon is, I want to transform your platform. Each and every one of us have a platform. Each and every one of us have a place that we are strategically positioned. And each and every one of us have access to people that are never going to come in this building. So what Jesus is trying to say is, I'm, I'm talking about vocational transformation. Just how I took Moses, just how I took David, and I turned them from shepherding sheep into shepherding my people. He's saying, Simon, I want you to use that skill set. I want you to use that platform. I want you to use that expert knowledge that you have that you've been using to feed your own family and increase your own substance. But I want you to start using that for my kingdom. See, the thing about it is, too, that I think about Simon. Jesus did not come to Simon's boat when it was convenient. He comes after the man has been working all night. Scripture tells us that he had docked the boat and that he's cleansing his nets. Like, he's getting ready to go home. He has punched the clock. He is off. Like, it's over. The day is over. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. Because imagine he's thinking he's got to go home and tell his wife he didn't catch anything today. He's got to deal with his business partners about not catching anything today. He's exhausted. He smells. And the last thing that he wants to do after the clock hits five, somebody wants to come. So here comes Jesus. And the thing about it is, is that because Simon understood the culture, when a rabbi comes and asks you to use your boat so that he can teach, Jesus tended to run services really long. <laughs> so this overtime was going to become a double shift. So Simon understood that, man, like you could just hear him saying, well, maybe, maybe he just wants to say something to him real quick. Maybe, oh, he sat down, he sat down. So, so like scripture says, Jesus goes on this boat and he sits down. He assumes the full position of a rabbi. So you can imagine, Simon is there, he can't leave. He can't just leave his boat. So guess what? Simon kind of gets tricked into staying for a church service. 
So he's sitting there. He's listening to the word of God. He's listening to Jesus preach. He's listening to the same word that all of the people get. And then when, that, when that's over, you know, you, you know, he's probably thinking to himself, Jesus, if you'll hurry up so I can get home. So Jesus finishes and then as the people are leaving and service is over, it's time to put up the chairs and we're, we're leaving, right? And then Jesus comes up to Peter and he says, all right, now let's go fishing. <laughs> He's like, but master, I've, I've toiled all night. I've, I've, I've worked all night. We, we have caught nothing. So what Jesus is trying to tell him, I understood that you've reached the limits of your human knowledge. I understood that your work ethic could only get you so far. I understood that your education could only get you so far. I understood that your training could only get you so far. I understood that, understand that everything that you've learned from your mentors and growing up, and I understand that you are classified as an expert in your field. But if, if, if you want to be successful, you can just hear this conversation that's going on. Now, the thing that's interesting about it, though, is that Simon, when he addresses Jesus, he addresses him different than what most people in the New Testament address him as. He doesn't say rabbi. See, it was customary in that culture to respect a rabbi's instruction when it came to religious matters but not in your field of expertise. Rabbis did not go around commenting and providing opinion on somebody's expertise. They were not gonna go to an engineer, and, uh, to a civil engineer and tell them how to build a bridge. A rabbi was not gonna go to a computer programmer and talk to them about how much network and bandwidth and capacity. Rabbis don't do that. Rabbis stick to their field. But Peter was able to discern that there was something different, and he called him master. Now, the difference between rabbi and master is some of us, when you live your life looking at him as rabbi, what happens is we confine his sovereignty and his authority to the religious matters of our life. We confine the sovereignty and the authority to things that we think deal with the church world, with the kingdom. But then we go to certain areas and we say, thank you, Holy Spirit, but I got two degrees in this. Thank you, Holy Spirit, but I, I was trained by the best. Thank you, but I, I grew up with my father watching him run this company as a child. Thank, thank you, Holy Spirit, but I always know what investments to make because the cue and the this and that. So we begin to tell God why, we, why you don't know about this. You see, you understand about the church stuff. You, you, you understand uh, about all these other matters, and you can talk to me about holiness and sanctification and prayer and church and all of these things. These are very welcome and accepted. But when it comes to my area and my field of expertise, with all due respect, Jesus. So Peter has an epiphany, and he has a choice to make. Could it be because his brother had faith in him as the Messiah? Or maybe during that sermon that, pre, that he just sat there and listened to himself. Maybe it worked up enough faith in him because when he says, well, master, nevertheless, at thy word, 
maybe sitting under it and dwelling and abiding with him at that time, he was able to discern that there was something different about his word, that it was worth giving it a chance. So now Simon gives Jesus permission to enter not only his life and his boat, but he gives him permission to be the expert in the situation that he was supposed to be the expert in. So, so now, the interesting thing about it, this, so there's three different types of nets that were used in scripture. There's one particular net that is only mentioned one time in the New Testament, and it's actually the net that Peter uses. And the first kind of net, it's, it's a seguin net, which is like a drag net, where you literally would throw a net out and the boat would continue to move. And you're literally, you're just trying to drag to the bottom and you're trying to drag up anything you can get. Then you have a dictua, which is like a casting net, okay, where you throw it out and you're trying to reel it up just to see what you can get. But the type of net that Peter is using, it's actually called an amphibostron. And it's a draw net. It's, it's bell-shaped. And it's one of those nets that works to where wherever you actually are, you literally throw it straight down. And the net just opens up. And it just reaches under where you already are. And it gets what you were on top of all the time, but you couldn't see. So the thing about it that's interesting is that when Jesus is having this conversation with Peter, he's saying, Peter, Number one, I am the expert in all things, okay? But number two, he's saying, Peter, I'm not going to call you into my kingdom. I'm not asking you to get every fish in the sea. I'm just asking you to get the ones that are right under you. So, so when Peter is there, the whole purpose, he's like, Peter, can I use your boat? Because what he's trying to get Peter to see is, Peter, you're worried, what you're worrying about catching is fine, but what you're missing is the bigger issue. You're, you're not catching enough. You're catching so much, but you're only catching one thing. Peter, you thought your boat was just for catching fish. When in reality, if you would transform your platform, your boat can be used to catch people. Because there's things that are all around you, Peter, that you can't see, but I can see them. And if you would listen to me, see, the thing that's interesting about it is, you know, as Juliet said, as a basketball coach, for the last five or six years, um, the staff that I'm a part of, we have begun experimenting, if you will, uh, using godly principles and throwing out and replacing things that you would learn if you were to go to coaching school, quite frankly. In coaching school, it says if you want to motivate a kid, profanity is, hey, use it. But can I be a kingdom coach and do that? If, if, if you look into the worldly sense, intimidation, you look at fear, you look at people afraid of their supervisors, afraid of their boss. So, so many of those tactics and techniques that the world teaches us that we have to use to be successful, if we would ask the Holy Spirit, we can get the same result, if not better, if we would do what the Holy Spirit says. But the key word, as Peter found out, it's timing with obedience. It's the timing with the obedience. If we would, if we would, if we would humble ourselves to sometimes put down some of our education, sometimes we've just become so smart. Sometimes, if, if we didn't make our training second nature, 
Sometimes if we didn't do everything that we know to do and then pray. Sometimes if we didn't call the supervisor, sometimes if we didn't call everybody else in the department, sometimes if we did not exhaust our own natural resources and come to our wits end and then see what the Lord has to say about a matter. So Jesus with the timing and what he says completely contradicts what any expert fisherman would have told Peter to do because the world's going to tell you, you need to work harder. The world's going to tell you, you just need to put in more hours. Any expert fisherman would have told him, well, did you get there? Did you work long enough? You need to work a double shift then. But Jesus tells him, well, let's fish right now. And you know Peter's thinking, but it's the daytime. But Jesus like, I'm trying to get you to see who I am. So the miraculous catch showed me two things. And the thing about it is, one is that when we obey the Holy Spirit, it always puts us in position to be blessed. Anytime we obey the Holy Spirit, it's going to put us in position to be blessed. But then the second thing is, when we read the rest of the story and we see Peter's reaction, this miraculous catch comes up. So not only Peter, because this is the same disciple that asked the question later, we've given up houses for you, we've given up mothers, we've given up fathers, we've given up all to follow you. And what are we going to get? The one time Peter asks an impetuous question, that he doesn't get shot down. Jesus actually answered the question and he told him a hundred times fold. So let me ask you this, was Jesus gonna profit from that catch of fish? No, but Simon was, the disciples was. See, the thing about it is, when we allow Jesus' permission to come into our boat and to use our platform, we are gonna be blessed the people around us are going to be blessed. Our families are going to be blessed. And then we're going to be able to touch and influence and impact more people than we would have on our own. When Peter sees, when Peter sees the catch, he gets down, he's on his knees, he's crying, he's emotional, he's asking Jesus to go away. He's just, he's just overcome by the holiness of God. And he's overcome by the fact that he is a sinner. I think the thing that really touched Peter's heart was that Jesus used what Peter already had. Jesus did not give Peter a special net. He did not give Peter a different net. He didn't even give him a new technique. In that moment, because Jesus is wooing Simon to come in, because he knows, he's already spoken over him, one day you're going to become Peter. See, every time we have an encounter with Jesus, not only does he reveal a little bit more of himself to us, but he also reveals more of who we're becoming. So in that moment, Simon feels this validation and this affirmation of, I'm enough for you. Insecurities are melting away. Because like I told you, his brother has already been in church, but Simon was the one who was not in church. And I wonder, like many people feel like, well, I could see if I had some big time job or I was some big time position or I owned a big time company. I could see why Jesus would want to use my boat. I could see why Jesus would want to use their boat. 
this person is rich, this person is wealthy, has a lot of influence. So I can see why Jesus would want to use that boat. But sometimes the way that we see our own boat is so insignificant that we don't think God can do anything with our boat. So what he's trying to get Peter to see is you've misjudged your boat. You've just saw yourself as small, but I see you as a rock. You just saw yourself as a fisherman, but I see you as a fisher of men. See, there's some of you here today that the Holy Spirit wants to ask you a question, and he wants to ask you, can I use your boat? Can I use your boat? It doesn't have to be a luxury cruise ship. It doesn't have to be a world-class liner. But whatever it is that you have, can I use what you have? Simon is overcome with emotion because Jesus used what he has. If I could get the prayer team to come and join us at this time. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this message? Many of you may say that I've given my boat and I've dedicated it a long time ago. Then I would have you ask, is there any areas in your life where he's only rabbi but not master? Others of you may say that well, I've never really given him my vote because I didn't think there was anything that he could do with it. But today, I just want to invite you down. And um, if you need prayer for any reason at all, we invite you. But specifically to those that say, I want to commit my boat to Jesus. And I want to get a catch that's greater with being in partnership with the Holy Spirit than I could have ever by myself.